Well, church, I hope that those words rung true for you this morning. That the God whom we've come to worship, the God who is the God of the poor and the lame, the God of the snow and the rain, has set a feast for us. We have it before us now in His Word, to which I'd like to draw your attention. And so if you have your Bibles, if you would open them with me to Genesis chapter 2. And find verse 4, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. And if you were with us last week, uh, we gave our full attention to creation's seventh day, the day on which God rested. Today, we're going to pick back up in chapter 2 and with verses that have caused much confusion over the years. As at a glance, they appear to provide a number of contradictory statements, particularly as it pertains to creation's order, which we examined in chapter 1, and we saw last week, if you were with us, in the last three verses or first three verses of chapter 2, how it was completed on day 6, because on day 7, God what? He rested. That's right. So, the first question that many of you this past week in your preparation for this morning might have wrestled with is, what exactly is chapter 2 describing? And how does it sync with chapter 1? Does it sync? And Melinda and I had this conversation last night as she was reading for this morning. And if it does sink, why did our author present it as he did? And they're fair questions, all, and ones we shall endeavor to address together as we work our way through this text. Tricky, I'll admit, but also familiar, I would imagine. Because almost everyone, I would think, has heard of Adam's rib how God brought Eve into being, right? I mean, there's been all manner of material produced about this. Pictures painted, songs written, jokes told, even tattoos inked. And I can attest to the last, not because your pastor's got himself a tat lately. I haven't, just so you know. But my brother-in-law, and I'm sure many of you know, met Jared before. He has this awesome gospel presentation. Covers both arms, sleeves. I mean, it's cool. And I don't know that he felt the gospel was sufficient. It needed context. And so he had to work in creation as well, which he did and wouldn't mind me sharing with a post-it note tattoo right here on his side, post-it note in his wife's handwriting that reads, I owe you one, with her initials even. I'm serious. It's wild. <laughs> you got to see it to believe it. And it has very little bearing on our text. So let me draw again, direct your attention Direct your attention back to the, t the scripture, which hopefully you've had an opportunity to find. And so I'm going to read for us now. Genesis 2 verse 4. Moses writes, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah 
where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are there also. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The, land of the, thir- or the name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and all of the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And church, may God bless the public reading of his word. So, as I said, familiar passage, I would imagine, and yet, it's one that raises numerous questions, many of which, I believe, are linked to our literary expectations. And so let me explain. Normally, the books we read follow a, a linear pattern. They begin in the beginning, and they then develop a story that's begun in the beginning before concluding at which point they pull together any loose ends by answering all questions raised over the course of this chronicle so that all, in the end, may live happily ever after, right? Now, there's certainly variation to this basic formula, but for the most part, this is the style we anticipate when we read stories and when we hear stories, which is why when we read the words... This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Here in chapter 2, we stumble and we do a double take because we just read about how in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And just two verses prior, our author told us, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So in our minds, we're already moving on to what comes next, aren't we? And so here, church, as we've seen several times previously, I believe we must remember Genesis is not a modern story, nor is it a scientific journal article providing us with little more than a factual, time-sensitive account of what happened. This is a descriptive record of what God did written many years in the past that as such reflects the style and the linguistic tools available to the storyteller at that time, Moses, and which he clearly utilized to full effect as he focuses here our attention on what is the main point, which I believe here in chapter 2 is God's gift of the land. 
God's gift of the land as reflected in at least three loci or three portions of text here specifically where the first, verses 4 through 7, gives its emphasis on the creation of man. The creation of man. So I want us to look a little more closely at these initial four verses that open with the seemingly strange statement. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, which I believe serves to remind us as the readers that all to follow isn't a further account reflecting chronological development. Rather, this should be read as an appendix, if you will, uh, uh, providing a, 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 a more detailed explanation of certain things only summarily expressed in chapter 1's six-day synopsis. And so, in other words, the reference that we have here, verse 4, to the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created is there and serves the purpose of embedding all that will follow in chapter 1's sequence of events, where that then which follows, so all that we're going to encounter this morning in chapter 2, that which follows then is intended to be an elaboration of that which preceded it. Last week we saw chapter 1. And I think we see this by several things given us in our text. First, in these first four verses, 4 through 7, the first thing we have is God's name. God's name. Because unlike in chapter 1's reference to God, using only that general term we saw together, Elohim, in the original, here, Moses uses what term? Lord God. And if you want to underline or circle highlight that, because here, Moses says Lord God. Where I'm sure many of you are aware, the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, that reflects the covenant name that God gave for himself many years later when he revealed it to the author himself in Exodus chapter 3. The name Yahweh, meaning I am. And so what I believe Moses is doing here is emphasizing for us, the readers, that Yahweh is God. He's the true God. And that in this land, this earth and heavens, in this land he made, he intended a special covenantal dwelling or covenantal relationship with his creation. And, and I say this because this title, Lord God, as it's given us here, this title's only use in the Pentateuch. So all five books that we believe Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this title's only use in the Pentateuch is here in chapters 2 and 3. Now there's one other use. I admit that's in Exodus 9 verse 30. And that's where Moses was speaking to Pharaoh following the plague of hail. All the rest, though, all the rest are used of God in the garden where his dealings with people, as we know, were radically different. Now, one theologian offers a, a similar and nuanced explanation that I think is helpful here as he suggests that this intentional title, nothing's used in Scripture just randomly, this intentional title is a way of specifying humankind's special, unique relationship to God as both the all-powerful creator and as the Lord. So the one who is with and in relationship with human beings. And I think this works well because when we get to chapter 3 next week, interestingly enough, the serpent never speaks of God using this title which I think is a revelation of the fact that he does not know God, Elohim, as Lord, Yahweh. And there's a difference. 
between these two references. Because I believe there are many people today who know God. They know the name. They know the stories about him. They may even believe the stories. But they've never confessed him as Lord Yahweh. Is Christ your Savior and Lord this morning? <laughs> Meaning, have you trusted him for life and have you submitted to him in life? Or are you still calling the shots? In the garden of which God said everything was very good, his relationship to his creation was conveyed by his being both God and Lord. So here's one point of elaboration for us. A second, I believe, is seen by God's work or it's seen in God's work. Because you, you notice how this account is of the heavens and the earth's creation. So you may want to circle that word. Because then Moses writes, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So we have, we have creating, and then we have making. Where This isn't simply a writer's way of keeping his audience engaged by avoiding repetition. The words that Moses chose here they're not synonyms and therefore descriptive, in my opinion, of the same action. Rather, what I believe we have described here is two different events. Two different events with the first, clearly the creation of the heavens and the earth, as we saw together in Genesis 1 verse 1. Followed by, and we addressed this if you were with us in chapter 1, but followed by God's making now the earth and heavens, or specifically land and sky, because this isn't a merism, this isn't a description of everything as conveyed by a single phrase, heavens and earth. Rather, this is a description of two things here, the land and the sky. And so God's making of these two things now, making, is God's preparing them so that his people may dwell with him. And thus what follows in all that we see is a description of the land prior to humankind's creation. And, and this is when we would see in the chronology of chapter 1, this would all line up with chapter 1, verse 2, where we're told that the earth was formless and God's Spirit was preparing to go to work, preparing to take that which had already been created and make it habitable for God with His people. And church, this, in this distinction here between creating and making is one I think is often missed between his, God's creation and God's making here, I'm convinced that in this, in this distinction, we see an emphasis on the land, where this land emphasis isn't so much a reference to a specific place, like a geographical location, as much as it is to a habitation. It's a place where God may dwell with his people. Because that was God's initial intent, wasn't it? And yet, sadly, it's lost as we'll see together, and for those of you who know the story, it's lost in chapter 3. But for those who know the story of the whole, then as it goes on, God promised to restore this which was lost, doesn't he? Moses even, go assemble the elders of Israel. God sends Moses for that very reason. Tell them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into what? A land, right? A land that's described as flowing with milk and honey. And as the people journeyed to the land, God accompanied them, didn't he? In a tabernacle, his dwelling 
with his people as they made their way to the land. And once they got to the land, God there dwelt in the temple. But again, once they got there, Israel followed the pattern that we see established here in the garden. And eventually they get kicked out, don't they? Exiled to Assyria and to Babylon. They're now in misery apart, so to speak, from God's presence. They cried out and God once again graciously made his dwelling with his people. Except this time, it wasn't in a particular place. It was in a particular person, Jesus Christ, who, as God, dwelt with sinful people and established his kingdom here on earth, his land here on earth, as it is in heaven. And as Lord, he made it possible for all who are his to enjoy this land forever as he paid the penalty of their sin. So can you hear, can you hear the, 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 the echoes of land for those who are familiar with the story of Scripture that just resonate throughout where what Moses is writing about here as we see in chapter 2 of Genesis is pointing us forward to events that are still to come. And so our text points us forward and it fills out the story, as we've said, regarding God's name, regarding his work, but I think a third way, regarding humanity's fall. Humanity's fall, and that's heralded for us in verse 5's description, I think, of shrub of the field and plant of the field. Very strange, these things to list. When you consider that day three's vegetation is described as seed-bearing plants and trees that bear fruit with seeds, which are then given, per day six, in the same description to all living things as food. So why now, we ask, why now add these two things? And why shrubs? Why shrubs which aren't in the food category for creation? And I think the answer is, as one commentator words it, because they anticipate the thorns and the thistles and the plants of the field that are to come per chapter 3, verse 18, as a result of the curse of the ground. Pointing forward, further proof of how our author's future fall-oriented, if you will. Here, I think you see further evidence to this fact when Moses says the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. Why? Because the Lord God didn't send rain. Until when? Genesis 7, right? And in 7, he informs Noah to go into the ark. Why? Because in seven days from now, I'm going to send rain on the earth for 40 days and nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living thing I have made. Prior to that need, there is no rain. Give you another one. In anticipation of the fall, I believe you can see that in the phrase that's there for us, there was no man to work the ground. And I think that statement points us forward to the time when the man and the woman would be kicked out of the garden to work the ground. That very same phrase in Genesis 3.23. And so what we have here in these opening four verses, four through seven, is Moses' emphasis on humanity's creation, only here it's not on their awesomeness or, or their uniqueness or, or their giftedness. Rather, in this elaboration, he's focusing on their humanness, their humanity. Humanness. Because you remember how in chapter 1, and, and we focused an entire time together on this, of how people are made in God's image. And this uniqueness distinguishes us from all other of God's creatures as God himself would come in human flesh and live amongst us so that he might save his people from their sins. If chapter 1 
sets humanity apart, then I believe chapter 2 humbles us as given by people's origins being described as in the dirt. It's a point that also directs us, if you think about it, to the future and to humankind's destiny after the fall when in Genesis 3.19 we're told that that which was taken from the dust is headed where? Straight back to the dust, right? And that's a principle that I think often we, particularly in our modern era, we struggle to swallow because we like to see ourselves as central to the story, essential even to the story. We're the main character. Everything needs to revolve around us. We're the subject of this special drama where the truth is we're nothing but dirt. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. And as much as we like to believe we are indispensable, history demonstrates the folly of such sentiment because the world keeps turning, doesn't it? Long after our obituaries are gone, we're not God. We share his image, but we are not divine. And the life that his breath brought to our mortal bodies will one day be gone, at which point we will expire. Because apart from the one in whom is life, everything dies. And this is why, this is why God desired to dwell with his people, his creation, so that they might enjoy the life that he is. Perfect, eternal painless, peace-filled, loving, joyous, satisfying, new, exciting, in the adjectives, we could just keep going. And we couldn't bring this existence about, or sadly, even sustain it once given, as Moses suggests, even as he records our creation. No, we needed God to provide this place, to, to prepare this land, this garden, and Moses addresses the preparation of the garden in the next locus, the next focused for us there, verses 8 through 14, where the first thing that I believe we benefit from seeing is how God plants this, like we talked about with our kids. This garden, God plants. Verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And so this is clearly an act that does not follow God's rest today in number 7, as this is a garden that God had planted, our tensing, evidencing that truth. And so what follows here, verses 9 then to the end is an elaboration, as we've spoken, of this land's preparation, generally described for us in chapter 1, but now specifically given regarding the garden in the east, in Eden, where Eden, as a term in the original language of the Old Testament, can mean delight. And if we couple that understanding with what we know as revealed us of the Creator's character, and this garden's purpose, then I think we can conclude that this name was intended to convey the idea of perfection. So this is a garden of, of idyllic delight and rest because this is where God's going to dwell with his people. And, and church, that might seem as obvious a point as can be made, but as with so many obvious things, it is easy for us to simply overlook it. The Garden of Eden wasn't just a place where all the necessary elements to support life just so happened to come together. This was a garden planted by God, which is an action that reveals, as we talked about with our children, it reveals both design and desire or intent for all that grows in any garden. Any is that which is planted by the gardener. And that which is planted by the gardener is so because the gardener desired it. Now, I realize that my analogy breaks down. 
when you consider the reality, and all analogies eventually do, but when you consider the reality of weeds, the unwanted presence of weeds, the analogy breaks down. But even then, I would argue, it still plays because they serve the point that we're seeing here. What grows in a garden has its origin in the gardener's desire and design, or it gets removed, doesn't it? And friends, that's exactly what we see happened in the first garden. In the garden's preparation, we see God plants it, and we see that God puts the man in it. God puts the man in it, where this act, like all of those that we've seen to this point, God performed, this is an act of grace. Because we're not told that the man did anything to merit this placement. He wasn't of special origin or, or need or possessed of unique abilities such that God had to put him in this place. God simply did it graciously. He put him in this place that he had planted purposely for him. We're in this placement, again, among other things, I believe we see God's plan in the future. Because just as Adam and Eve didn't merit relationship with God or life lived in his presence, neither do we. Not a one of us deserves the promise of eternal life lived where God is. We are broken, sinful, and God knew this. God knew this about his creation from before he brought them into being. And as we've noted that, here already in chapter 2, there are indications given us of what's to come in chapter 3. Why? Because God knew. He wasn't taken aback by his people's sinfulness. The behavior that we're going to look at together next week of Adam and Eve in the garden didn't catch God by surprise. Because even here, at the very beginning of the story, before sin is even entered, featured, we see the richness of God's grace and the perfection of his rest. It's a perfection that will be lost in one chapter, but will one day be restored. As I believe is pointed forwards to in these references here, in verse 11 through 14 of gold, references to gold and precious jewels, which are intended, in, I, I believe, to convey the glory, the physical glory of God's presence in this surroundings which would be around him. And then these references, and I say this because later on, as we get through the story and into the, 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 the other books that are composing this story, we have references by the prophet Haggai in chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8 where he picks up on these and he proclaims the glory of God's presence in the new temple that's to come. And he draws on these same images referenced here in Genesis 2. And John does this in his revelation as well. He stressed in chapter 21 how gold and and precious stones would be a picture or would picture the glorious presence of God among his people. In fact, verse 3 in Revelation 21, John writes these words, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then he describes this dwelling, the city, as Augustine referred to it. He, he says that the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I believe this description of the new garden, if you will, that God is preparing for his people. It's a place where he will dwell with his people. And there will be no tears, no pain, 
no suffering, no sin, no death. And there'll be no removal from this place for those who are a part of it. Are you? Do you know this morning without a doubt that your place in God's presence is assured? Because you can. You can. Because Moses, here in chapter 2, even elaborates on God's creation of man, God's preparation of the garden, and he also addresses in verses 15 through 24, man's place in the garden. Verse 15, this place, or this purpose, if you will, is described in these words. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work it and take care of it. Now, it isn't often that our English translations muddle, if you will, our understanding of what a text is conveying. However, this is one instance where I, I do believe that our NIVs put him there, that, that phrase, put him, which is shared with the ESV, the NASB as well, even the Holman's use of placed him. I believe these, these attempts fail to capture the fact that in the original language of the Old Testament, a different term is used here in verse 15 than in verse 8. And if you want to circle the put him there in verse 15 and then circle the one in verse 8, these are two different words. And the word that is used here, that's rendered put for us in verse 15, is one that our author uses uniquely and exclusively to convey two things. Two things. First, God's providing rest and safety. This word is used to convey God's providing, putting his people in a place of rest and safety. And these come from the uses of this same word elsewhere by our author in Genesis 19, verse 16. So if you want to go back and look at these later, Genesis 19, 16, he uses it again with these same two intentions in Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 20. So this first sense that's conveyed here is of rest and safety, but there's a second, as I said, and that is of the dedication of something in the Lord's presence. So the putting of one is the dedicating of one in God's presence, and this sense is given us when this same word, here verse 15, is used in Exodus 16.33, in Leviticus 16.23. It conveys the same sense in Numbers, chapter 17 and verse 4, and there's others. But the point is, church, here, with what we're reading, God isn't just tossing a man into the garden. He's not lobbing him like a grenade. He's doing so in a manner that he might experience rest and safety as he is dedicated to the Lord. And I would imagine at this point we're all tracking. I mean, if the garden is God's, as we've acknowledged it to be, then surely he's well within his rights to determine the experience of those who dwell therein and to expect their commitment. Fair? But what does this commitment entail? And this is where we find a second point of muddling, if you will, for lack of a better word in translation. Because it would seem for, for us, from our literal reading of what our NIV has in front of us, that God's purpose to this question of commitment, this purpose for man in the garden is given to us, verse 15, as working it and taking care of it, right? Now there's elements to this that would work and we use this reference in our past sermon last week, but there are grammatical issues 
with this translation of work and care, which I'm not going to bore you with, but to say there's a less problematic way of rendering these two words, and that is as worship and obey. Worship and obey. And that opens up a whole new understanding of what's going on because I believe that this translation fits better with the verses that follow, which when you consider what God commands then is man's going to eat from all the trees in the garden, but he says, but not from the one in the middle, the one of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you think about it just grammatically, this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, if God's purpose for man was to work and to care, then surely the first things that God would say to the man in the garden would have to do with working and caring, right? And yet this is not what we see. But when we consider worship and obey, that makes perfect sense. And it's not only grammatically clear, but I believe it's also theologically more consistent because it establishes for us here at the very beginning in the garden, Genesis 2, that God's original design for people wasn't focused upon them or on the creation that surrounded them. His original purpose was focused upon him, God, and his word. And so this morning, as we consider God's garden, so this place where he dwells perfectly with his people, what we see, I believe, is in this place, in his presence, our place rather, in his presence, our place can't be, can't be the result of our work or our care for what he's made. We can't merit a place in God's presence by anything that we could do. It's all about worship, which is only possible if, as the Apostle Paul makes clear when he wrote to the church gathered in Corinth the first time, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, he said it's only possible if God, by his grace, through the power of his spirit, enables us to say, Jesus is Lord, Lord, because we can't do this on our own. And God's Spirit only works in this rejuvenating, regenerating way through the heard word of the gospel, according to Romans 10. And so this morning is a question. Having heard the gospel together, the gospel, the good news, that our sin, our brokenness, which merits death, was paid for in full by Christ. Christ, who is God's Son, perfectly fulfilled God's law. The expectations given in Genesis 2 of, of work, of, of worship rather, and obedience. He died then on a cross in our place and he rose from the dead victorious over sin in the grave, gifting then to us his righteousness so that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we will have life. Our lives will be saved and live forever after in the garden marked by God's perfect presence. So would you this morning respond to this gospel? And friends, I pray that every single one has, and if not yet would, by confessing their sin and believing in Jesus. Because the fellowship with God as described in these chapters is what we were made for. It's why we have this itch that we simply cannot scratch with the world's success and wealth or anything else, love, God's commands, as we see in Scripture, are clearly for our good and for His glory. And that's a fact further evidenced as we get into our text a little deeper, as God provides man with a companion, 
shares his essence but remains distinct, complementing him in every way without removing the man's need for God as his sustaining presence. And there's a, a lot more <laughs> that we could say regarding Adam's rib, Eve's suitability for Adam and how God chose to do what he did and why. But as I said, while these are important, I believe they are secondary. Secondary concerns because the heart of this chapter is the garden. And at the end of the day, all that matters is whether you call it home or not. So is the garden, as we've heard it described, your home? I pray that it is. Would you pray with me as we conclude? Father, we thank you for how you have made us. God, and you knew the needs that we would face. Lord, nothing caught you by surprise, and we give you praise that this is not some subjective sentiment that we hold to to give us hope in the times that may seem rough. Father, this is an objective revelation of who you are as you have made it known to us. Father, thank you for how you save by grace through faith. And Father, how you bring us to life as we hear the gospel and as your spirit imparts that life to us which we then respond to in confession of our sin, God, and in declaration of our faith in Jesus as Lord. And Father, I pray that if there are any here today who have sensed that quickening in their spirit, that sense of concern and of, of realizing the need that they have for Jesus, this need that they've maybe sensed prior but not been able to understand completely. But God, today I've heard them and have been reminded this is what it is. This is where it's pointing. This is what your word has brought about, this realization. And now we desire to confess our sin, admitting that we are not who we need to be, nor will we ever be, because we can't do it on our own. But we acknowledge that Jesus did, that he is God the Son. But he's also now, we ask our Lord, that he would come and he would be the director of our lives, the king reigning over all. Father, we use references to speak of your rule uh, that we pull from what we see around us, but God, there's so much more to it. And while we may not be able to fully articulate it, we, we desire this. Father, if there are those this morning that have this sense in their hearts, I pray that they would admit these things. And God, that you would do that which you and you only do and save. Father, justify them such that they now stand in your presence clothed by Christ's perfection with the confidence that their belonging in the garden is given, guaranteed, as you place your spirit within them as a glorious testimony to that promise. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that all that you give us is by grace and that we can sing when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be with confidence, not with question. Father, the, the tone with which we sing this is declarative because of what we know your word has made clear. And so God, we give you thanks for these truths in Jesus' name.